Hey, what's going on? It's Infinity Zen episode two. Gonna do a solo show here because uh, weather permitting, Brian is not able to come over t- uh, <laughs> probably for a while to be honest with you because of the fact that it's literally a, f- a blizzard out there. It's, it's honestly insane. I hope everybody's staying safe. Um, right now it's about 9.33, February 1st, so I just kind of wanted to go over a few things um, that I have written down. This was supposed to be for episode two, but at the end of the day, Ryan, like I said, is probably not going to be able to come over for a little bit because of the weather. Um, so, first thing on the menu for today is um, why it's important to argue well and effectively. So the main thing that I wanted to talk about was um, I got into a um, bit of a a heated discussion with one of my Instagram followers the other day, and it it was mainly about certain social issues in that he had a different perspective on on some things that I had a completely different perspective on. And um, it's one of those things where you kind of look back on an argument, and not necessarily in a heated argument, but you look back on an argument that you think could have gone a little bit differently had either you or the other person been more prepared for the argument. Um, it would—I would say that it's—it was intellectual. It was an intellectual argument, um, and w- which is a good thing because intellectual arguments are probably um, the best to be had. Because if you think about it, intellectual arguments are going to be arguments that not only make you think, but also make you a better, um, I guess, a a better outlooker of the world, I guess, is is a way to put it. It makes you think a little bit more rationally. It makes you think a little bit more about your own opinions and things like that. So... Just a um, a quick synopsis of it. Ultimately, what the argument was about was um, fu- it was funny because we got into talking about um, this this clinical psychologist named Jordan Peterson, and um, a lot of people look up to him. A lot of people um, idolize him in a sense, and I would argue that he is a big factor into. Not necessarily what I believe, but more so into how I present my arguments and how I how I analyze thought. Um, my beliefs have really come from earlier uh, thinkers, I guess, in a sense. Um, like I said on the last episode, uh, talked a lot about Immanuel Kant. Um, I think I, I mentioned, might have mentioned George F. Will, but uh, a lot of people on on the right I guess as a way to put it have influenced my thinking in a sense um, I think I mentioned that in this segment where I talk about like why I became conservative and uh, my influence really just ranged from uh, people like especially people like Robert Bork um, Manuel Kant I already said Aristotle um, great great philosopher um, haven't really read anything from Plato, but 
we'll probably get to that at some point. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and it is quite late in the night. My mom is already asleep, so if I have to be a little bit more quiet, then we're just going to have to live with that fact. Um, so, first things first. Um, I want to talk about why it's important to argue well and effectively. The um, the main component of an art or the two main components of an argument are um, oh god if I could think of the word um, good premises and a um, a good not conclusion. I'm just, I apologize. I've had a little bit to drink tonight, but. Um, a good conclusion to your argument, I guess. If I could think of the word itself, I definitely would. I'm 99% I'm sure it's not conclusion. But what we're really going to talk about with this is the importance of, of good premises and a good closing to your argument. So I was talking to this kid and I haven't really, I don't really know him per se, but I, um, we've had, we've had conversations before. We, we spent some time together here and there, um, pretty much right out of high school. And he always identified as someone who was more centrist, someone who was more independent. And, uh, at least from the, um, the earlier times that we had recently gotten out of high school for, we've had we've seldom had any political discussions up until this point I would say and one thing I have I have the conversation in front of me which is um, I guess a good reference point one thing that I noticed about his arguments and his arguments kind of echo certain arguments made from people on the left and people on the right for that matter and oftentimes they'll contain logical fallacies and logical fallacies are ultimately what what are detrimental to a good argument, what are detrimental to facts, and what are detrimental to ultimately just logic and common sense. So going through what he wanted to talk about, he really wanted to talk about certain social issues. And once again, this is not meant to be a political podcast by any means, but um, for the sake of the discussion in an in and of itself, um, we'll probably discuss a little bit uh, some of these political topics. But I'm not necessarily going to talk about my opinions on them as much as I am going to talk about um, the holes in his logic. So what we really got to talking about first was Jordan Peterson, like I said. And we really started kind of going into... Um, modes of thought not necessarily modes of thought but more so um, I guess the perspective that some thinkers have and one thing that really struck me with his presentation of his argument was the notion that he kind of I'm not sure if there's an actual logical fallacy with this because he kind of fell back on the fact that he was like, oh, I used to like Jordan Peterson, but... And then he'd kind of fill in the blank by, you know, saying something along the lines of, oh, well, I used to like him until I realized how wrong he was, or, or something along those lines. And really offering no evidence 
for his argument. And the the I want to say the ironic thing about that dis- whole discussion was the fact that I really never relied on Jordan Peterson's thinking. Um, I never really. Um, I never used any Peterson talking points. Really, really, it stemmed from he, he responded to something that I posted. It was it was actually funny enough one of the question prompts, and I want to say was the question regarding religion, where I said that um, Jordan Peterson says that he doesn't answer the question of whether or not he believes in God by saying directly whether or not he does, but he typically answers that question by saying, well, I I live my life as if there was a God who was going to judge me post-death. So he ultimately went on a tangent about, that tangent's not the right word, I'm not going to mischaracterize his argument, but he kind of um, really went on a... He began to talk about how he dislikes Jordan Peterson, and I can understand. <laughs> like, you either love him or you don't. So, but that's neither here nor there. Um, he he ultimately broke it down by saying, "Well, I don't agree with Peterson's perspective on this, that, and a third, and I don't agree with him on his social views and things like that." So, once again, I responded pretty much by saying well you know you can you can criticize the social views but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's right just because you don't agree with it and we we talked about things ranging from feminism to transgenderism to poverty in america to to the meaning of truth and things like that so my main thing about it really was the fact that he kept criticizing my arguments as if I was strictly relying on Peterson when in several ways I was not. I think I might have referenced Peterson once or twice in the art, in this discussion that was uh, several, if not dozens of paragraphs long. So uh, the segment really here deals with the importance of arguing well and arguing effectively. So, um, two things have to be true. Uh, your premises have to be correct, and your conclusion has to, has to be correct, and um, has to has to relate to your premises in, in some way to, to reinforce them. So I, I guess it's a three-legged stool in that sense. But my whole thing with the the discussion that we we had, what well, was really the fact that he presented a lot of ad hominem arguments, a lot of um, uh, attacks on character, and, and to, to some extent really had some appeals to authority, had some uh, just, I'm not even going to really name all the logical fallacies because I'm, I'm sure that there's a whole encyclopedia of logical fallacies that I could probably name for this, but ultimately what had happened was the the conversation really degenerated very quickly and I, I notice this a lot when it comes from people who are clearly on the left even if they even if they claim to be an independent or a centrist or a moderate uh, usually when it comes to politics especially when it comes to social politics you can really tell whether or not someone is is truly in the middle 
or if they're to the left or to the right. Um, personally speaking, I'm not ashamed or afraid to, to admit that I'm on the right when it comes to social politics, but this, this particular individual um, made it abundantly clear several times that he was a centrist. And to, to the extent that I believed it, I believed it up until we've had this conversation because he, he had very, very, not even left-leaning, but just ultra-left views. And he would attack things as, as anti-science and anti-logic. Anti and I thought it was quite ironic that he would say this as I would present facts and statistics and he, he would present no evidence of his own up until I called him out on that and then several hours later he decides to send me several links to very biased articles. So it's important to argue effectively, but it's, it's especially important to argue well because there's, there's a difference between arguing effectively and arguing well. Um, you can argue effectively in several ways, um, but a lot of the times arguing effectively you're going to commit uh, logical fallacies in your argument and what I mean by that is that you can easily shut down opposition using one of several hundreds of logical fallacies so and, and that can be effective in the sense that you shut your opponent up but arguing well is the fine line between shutting your opponent up and dealing with an opponent that simply won't, won't shut up like me um, because I the only time I stopped responding was when it took him however many hours to respond with articles after I called him out for evidence and and he, the articles that he sent me were biased and I just recognized, I, I knew from the jump more or less that the argument really wasn't going to go anywhere. So, um, I'm, like I said, I'm not going to really get into the, the topics in which we discuss, but I'm more so going to talk about the, the problems with his argument. So... He um, kind of went right off the bat by saying that transgenderism is, quote, literally an entirely understood concept in science, end quote. So disregarding any opinions um, in favor of or in opposition to that statement, um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it's not an entirely understood uh, concept in science. Um, in actuality, science is extremely polarized on the topic, and um, I'm, I don't necessarily need to provide the articles because all you really have to do is look up um, the science of transgenderism, and you'll you'll come come across several conflicting articles that you know you'll find some articles in favor of, you'll find some articles in opposition to, or at least to certain aspects like whether or not we should be giving hormone therapy to, to children of a certain age or, or things like that, or you know, should we be giving uh, hormone blockers to children of a certain age. But once again, this is really isn't meant to get into that, to those details. So first off, he, he kind of really just committed an appeal to authority fallacy there because of the fact that he not only said that it's a completely understood concept in science but he because that right there that's a direct appeal to authority it's like well what scientists are you relying on that you that they tell you that it's a completely understood concept 
Second of all, I called him out on that. I was like, well, you can say that all you want, but the fact of the matter is is that uh, several scientists, more than several, um, a plethora of scientists are are not 100% sure on it, and even those that claim to be 100% sure are still technically learning about it. So to say that it's completely understood is, is it's just incorrect. Um, and he kind of buckled at the knees at that by basically saying that um, that most scientists agree on it, which also isn't true. Um, so the... I'm not here to compare our arguments per se, but I will say that I had the more effective argument and the more well thought out argument out of the two of us because not only did not only was I able to poke holes in his argument, I was able to to poke holes in his and add more air to mine. So I um I just think that it's it's important that we understand what not to do in an argument. I think that it's important to not claim that there's science behind something when there arguably is not. And majority of science on several topics is is very disputed. Um, Even going down to cancer research, that's why people go for second opinions. That's why people um, are very skeptical of the medical industry per se and in saying that I mean we can argue that transgenderism in its in and of itself is it's a relatively new concept in science let alone completely well understood so I, I think that his proposition that it was completely understood was his biggest flaw because you, you need to back that up when you say it's completely understood. You need to tell me that there's undisputed evidence that we understand 100% um, everything about it as a science. And, and once again, the fact of the matter is, is that we don't. So first things first, really know the, um, know the weight of your claim, I guess would be a good way to put it. Know that your claim is going to be not only undisputable, but is also going to be backed up by evidence in the event that your your claim becomes disputed. You know, um, that would probably be the most important thing. So, another thing that we got to talking about was freedom of speech, which I I thought was very funny because it kind of went hand in hand with the transgenderism because. We got to talking about Jordan Peterson's um, views on Bill C-16, which is a Canadian legislative bill that ultimately um, makes it a crime to misgender somebody. Um, and that's whether or not you believe in, um, in the social aspect and the scientific aspect of transgenderism or otherwise. So his whole stance on it really came from a point of utility. I can tell that he's very utilitarian. I wouldn't necessarily say that he's egalitarian all the way, but some later arguments that he presented were very egalitarian. Um, But they're a mix. It's a mix of utilitarianism and egalitarianism, which I think is a perfect breeding ground for Marxism. Um, 
So he ultimately said something along the lines of, well, people ought to be called and addressed by the pronouns that they wish, regardless of presentation or otherwise, simply because it makes them happy and it, and it serves a greater utility. And I followed that up by saying, well, the problem with that is the fact that there's so much ambiguity, for one thing, um, at least in the realm of uh, gender pronouns, there's a very deep ambiguity as to how many genders there are and, you know, are any of these genders even real? So that, but once again, that is far beside the point. My point ultimately was, well, Bill C-16 really comes down to, if you strip it away of its context and gender pronouns, it's really just a matter of compelled speech. You are making it legally sanctionable if someone doesn't address someone else by a certain name or a certain pronoun. And I think that that's detrimental to free speech. You're, you're literally telling people what they have to say as opposed to what they cannot say. And in the sense that I agree with free speech, I, com I completely agree with... Uh, 99% absolute free speech. If there's a call to action, different story. If there's a, an argument about expression, different story. Um, that's something for, I'm sure that'll be for a later episode. But the, the fact of the matter is that Bill C-16 compels speech and telling people what they have to say or otherwise face the legal consequences. I, I think that that's the antithesis to free speech so in saying that i he um he used a very stereotypical argument against free speech by um citing that you cannot yell fire in a crowded movie theater um which is probably the weakest argument that someone can have i would i would say that that, that is a straw man fallacy um because i was easily able to counteract that by saying well yelling fire in a crowded movie theater is a call to action and it's not in any way shape or form comparable to to calling somebody by their biological pronoun um the the two are extremely unrelated and it's not a good example to use when trying to make your point. So my take on it was the fact that there's no potential, again, stripping of all context, whether or not the, the individual themselves becomes hostile or violent. Um, if you look at it rationally, misgendering somebody is not a call to action, nor is it a, a reason that someone should become violent or aggressive or otherwise pose um, a significant harm to other individuals. If they do, then that's that's just um, that's just irrational. It's not only irrational, it's it's evidence of a decadent society. I mean, we look at um, incidents like um, like when Ben Shapiro was on that panel with a with a transgender woman. And he referred to her, and it, it was a panel that was discussing things like um, 
gender pronouns and things like that. And to make his point, he continually addressed the transgender woman by by their biological pronouns. And and the the woman, the transgender woman, said something along the lines of, "You keep talking like that, you're going to leave here on a stretcher." So that's irrational by by several standards. It's, it's rational that you. You should never threaten harm against somebody simply because what they're saying, um, like that you don't agree with what they're saying. And I understand if you think that it's a direct um, harm to you, but if if we look at it like this, if if we view things, if we view language particularly as harmful, then we ultimately say that language can therefore be used as a weapon. And therefore, that weapon can be used to cause harm against somebody. Therefore, like certain language and certain usage of language ought to be sanctioned legally. And I think that that's, that is an impediment on free speech. Um, and I think free speech triumphs over people's feelings. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that it, there's, a, there's a very strong difference between someone identifying as the opposite sex and in the name of transgenderism, but the, there's there's a different aspect to the the entirety of transgenderism in that people are viewing themselves on a more unique scale. They're they're viewing themselves as if well. I can be gender nonconformist and consider myself non-binary, and I can use the the plural pronouns of they them, and uh, it gets into murky water there because at which point you decide that you can be addressed by a plur by um, pronouns that deal with pluralism as opposed to to singularity you ultimately open up the door for there to be an infinite amount of pronouns. And this is really where it comes down to, because I've heard the argument several times that there's an infinite amount of genders, and that that, that is that is merely a, um, I don't even want to say merely, because it, it's a big ideological um, viewpoint of people on the progressive left, where they, where they insist that uh, an infinite number of genders um, can exist, but the, the the problem with that is that well, if, if you don't clearly define how many genders there are, then you, I don't necessarily want to say that as a slippery slope that an infinite amount of genders can be utilized, but or created for that matter. But the fact of the matter is, is that you're going to eventually start to dictate our language and how we use our language by making it illegal. To, to call people by their biological sex and gender, um, two terms of which were scientifically used interchangeably throughout time up until recently. So the argument that um, calling somebody by their biological sex is, is somehow harmful to them, I think that that's, that's a very hard point to make and I don't think that it stands up to scrutiny so I, I would argue that it's a straw man fallacy um, so, so further on in, in our debate here I wouldn't even call it really a debate because there was really no evidence being presented from his side it was more opinionated and feelings driven and emotion oriented that's the way to put it
So, you know, I called him out several times on his extreme and rare um, examples, and he would ultimately admit to the fact that yes, like you know, the the examples that he he used were extreme and and were um, relatively rare for that matter. But he still really didn't give up in his pursuit of trying to, to convince me otherwise of, of my opinions. And, you know, not to, not to make myself out to be some type of logical superior, but uh, the fact of the matter was that my evidence was empirical, empirical, not anecdotal, and mine was more logic-driven, whereas his was more emotion-driven. So several times he would say that, well, people feel a certain way, therefore we should, you know, do things to make them happy. Well, the, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that law, forget Ben Shapiro's facts don't care about your feelings. If we're going to talk about compelled speech, I can make the case that law doesn't care about your feelings. I mean, look at look at family court where um, a significant percentage of men lose custody battles to, to the women. I think it's somewhere around 80%, if not a little bit more. And men get torn up about that because of the fact that, well, you know, um, they feel as though the, the family law system is built against them because they can seemingly never win a custody battle regardless seemingly of how unfit of a parent the mother is and you know i think um i i honestly think that appealing to statistics should be a logical fallacy because a lot of the time statistics kind of um don't necessarily account for all other mitigating factors uh such as like if we want to talk about like well why are why are more black people in prison than than white people. Well, you know, we, we could easily say like, yes, yeah, statistically more black people are in prison than white people, but also we can account for the fact that black people make up 13% of the population, but account for almost half of the crime in the United States. Well, and then we get into a whole whole statistical debate on on that subject. And that's, that's an argument that I, I'd prefer to avoid this evening. So, um, let's talk a little bit more about some other issues that we kind of went into in this discussion. He, he was ultimately accusing me of cherry picking, um, cherry picking facts to, to push a narrative is, is what he said. And he was telling me that conservatism is a party of anti-science and obviously with, with no evidence to back that up, which again, that I, I, don't really know I, I don't really understand why he was so personally um, attached to certain topics that we discussed but I, I honestly think that it comes from the fact that he was so persuaded by certain leftist progressive arguments that he um he decided to abandon his quote unquote independent and centrist ideologies for certain social narratives. I'm, I'm sure that he was probably one of those independents that views themselves as a social liberal and an economic conservative, and and those people are absolutely bonkers. 
to be honest with you. It's like, well, if you're socially liberal, then, then you're a liberal because social liberalism really doesn't coincide well with economic conservatism because at some point you are going to push for socially liberal economic policy and at which point you'd become a full-blown liberal and funny enough he actually he goes further into it further into advocating for certain economic liberal economic policies which i'll discuss soon um so i um i countered quite frequently by saying that well um the the slippery slope fallacy the the notion that when you make an argument saying that well if you do this then it'll lead to this and that'll lead to that the the slippery slope fallacy anyone could easily argue is proving not necessarily to be a fallacy at this point in time because pretty much everything that social conservatives have, have predicted has happened if not is in the process of happening so we talk about things such as um well i guess these in the context of the argument that we have here um i, I believe i was saying something along the lines of excuse me um let's see here what did i say well, really, really got started off with the the notion of the difference between equality and equity, but well, um, I guess we'll talk about it in the sense of the transgenderism issue because it seemed to be his biggest gripe with me, which is fine, I guess. Um, so I conceded. I was like, yes, like you know, you could easily argue that I'm committing a slippery slope fallacy here, but oftentimes, especially of late. Um, the slippery slope fallacy has proven to not be much of a fallacy at all, to be honest, because pretty much everything that we've said that one event will lead to another has ultimately come true. You know, it's like you give a you give an inch and they take a mile. You you ultimately say like, okay, you'll concede that transgender individuals exist, and then they'll they'll take that and say, well, then non-binary people exist, and people who identify with these obscure and unheard of pronouns exist and again that's where it goes into you give an inch and they take a mile and the the slippery slope fallacy when it comes to things like that it's proven to not be much of a fallacy at all because i mean we have to look at it in a certain through a certain lens where it's like we we can understand why people may want to feel more accommodated to their personal feelings but I mean, at, at which point we could also argue that every individual has a certain level of masculinity and femininity in them, and that if we were to base gender identity off of the levels of masculinity and femininity, then we could easily say that for however many individuals there are on planet Earth, there are an equal amount of genders, you know? Um, and, and that's a slippery slope because it it's proven, like I said, to not be much of a fallacy because it appears that there's a new gender discover, or a gender identity every single day. There, there are new pronouns to address people by every single day, at, at which point 
you, you kind of have to draw the line and that's ultimately where it comes down to okay well I have two options I can give in to the notion that gender identity is going to be constructed or not constructed but created out of thin air seemingly every single day or I can argue the notion of the fact that there's only or yeah the fact that there's only two genders two biological genders male and female and again someone could easily say that that's a false dichotomy fallacy but the fact of the matter is as well science says that there's two biological science says that there's two um but progressive ideology says that there there's an infinite amount so it's, it's one or the other you kind of have to choose between the two you know because you can't you can't concede that there's more than two because then you open the door to saying well, well then there's more than two then there's an infinite amount as opposed to saying well there's only two and that's, that's that so so that's one thing um and then we kind of got into talking about um human rights and and the the euphemism of human rights is, is one that i i genuinely hate it's one of the few euphemisms that I have a hatred for because several others we can easily just yeah, we can just pick apart and call it a day. But the fact of the matter is is that as of late people talk about human rights but they don't necessarily understand what a human right is, let alone what what human rights ought to be. So his argument seemed to stem for, well, a human right, and this isn't his words, I'm not directly quoting him, but this is ultimately the the rationale I got behind, or got from his argument. Uh, human right is the, the right to not be offended. Um, and, and to me, that, that that's, that's a tricky one. <laughs> because, you know, I understand treating people with respect, but it shouldn't be outlawed to disrespect somebody. And I'm not saying that you go out there into into civilization and just be rude and disrespectful to everybody, but you know, when when talking about certain controversial issues, the fact of the matter is is that if you speak honestly and truthfully, you're you're going to offend somebody. And to to make that punishable by law, especially in the name of human rights, I think that that's that's a bit of an issue because of the fact that you're ultimately outlawing opinion and in several cases you are outlawing facts. So that's that's one thing. My thing is is like if, if you want to argue in favor of human rights then you need to explicitly define what a human right is otherwise um, human rights ultimately becomes a euphemism that is ever changing and human rights will be created out of thin air as society progresses and that, that's not something that that's not that doesn't make for a stable environment of law and doesn't make for a stable society because if we're not all in agreement of what a human right is then you're you're bound to get at least half the population of people to to um, infringe on those human rights and that's why i think that it's arguably simple just to say that well the, the three basic human rights are the inalienable rights that come from the declaration of independence you know life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and 
I, I made it abundantly clear in my argument when it comes to human rights that, uh, at least in, in, in the context of this discussion, that I was like, well, those are the three human rights that people can agree on. And I said, well, the pursuit of happiness is different from happiness because the government is not permitted to guarantee you happiness, but at the very least, it can protect your right to pursue happiness. So, because I mean, and this kind of goes back to the whole meaning of life thing that we talked about in episode one, where it's like, well, that's why the meaning of life is not happiness, because if you're not happy, then your life has no meaning, <laughs> you know, and I can, I can go on a whole tangent about that, but, but I'll spare you the, um, the possibility of a, of a five hour long solo episode, because I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to keep this brief, but I'm just trying to make it as simple of an episode as possible because it's literally just me here very late in the night and you know I, I don't I don't have the the freedom to, to speak loudly and you know I don't have anybody to, to bounce ideas off of and encounter you know I'm pretty much just reading a, reading a transcript from a discussion here um, so he um, he kind of followed that up by saying, well, um, the government, he quote, the government is meant to protect happiness, which I think is an absurd argument. If the government was meant to protect happiness, I think that the government would be totalitarian and everybody would be faux happy. <laughs> like... I couldn't. I couldn't imagine a government where their sole, not even sole responsibility, but even if a fraction of their responsibility was to protect happiness, I think that we would have a very, very weird society where everybody was just kind of like walking around with a fake smile on their face, like like North Korea, for example. Everyone pretends to love their government and be happy with their life, even though they're starving and under threat of, you know, speaking their mind and possibly being fed to dogs and being executed by way of ballistic missile <laughs> or aircraft I think I think Kim Jong-un executed his uncle via anti-aircraft guns he probably like tied him up against the wall and just had them shoot those big fucking caliber missiles at him but like ultimately like that's that's what it comes down to like you can't make the case that the government is meant to protect happiness on the fact of the matter is is like well if you think about it the government is meant to protect happiness then then wouldn't like, why is there so much polarization in the country based off of uh, political uh, policy? Like, like you know, like, the, the president, quite frankly, doesn't give a shit about our happiness. He just cares that everyone's safe and that everyone's, you know, everyone is, at the very least, having their, their three human rights met, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness government's meant to protect happiness well then every little thing that doesn't make me happy i can petition the government to 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 fix you know like i can easily say like oh well you know a million dollars my bank account would make me extremely happy does the government is the government obliged to to transfer a million dollars my bank account absolutely not so that's it's pretty much what and sure that's a straw man but that's pretty much the argument that he's making there and I think that it's not far-fetched from the idea that, well, we ought to call people what they want to be called for the sake of their feelings as opposed to the, the notion that we abide by scientific fact and we, we abide by the fact that there's um, 
uh, a plethora of ambiguity when it comes to certain topics such as transgenderism. So, I should probably wrap up this segment, to be honest with you, because um, I can go on all night about this, and I really, I just don't have it in me to do so. Um, so I'll, I'll wrap it up ultimately by saying that he, his arguments were really stemmed from, like, well, I disagree with Jordan Peterson, and I, I would like to interpret your arguments as strictly coming from Jordan Peterson because it's easier to attack. An individual than it is attack to attack in a, a system of ideas, and that's really where his arguments came down. What his arguments came down to. So, um, that's not how you argue. Well, that's not how you argue effectively. You argue effectively by arguing to the point. You argue to the facts presented by the opposing side, and your conclusion has to be um, intertwined with your premises, and your conclusion has to be. Um, more, more reinforceable than your premises. Your premises are pretty much just the backbone of it, but the the conclusion of your argument is meant to be the footing. It's meant to hold it all together and make sure that it's standing upright. And and his is his arguments were just unbelievably fragile. The it. it the only reason I really stopped arguing with him, because I, to be honest with you, I could probably still be arguing with him if I really wanted to be, was the fact that I just didn't care to address his nonsensical points, because it just none of it was worth my time. It, it, it honestly, God, it wasn't. And I think that, um, I, I, I just, I just think that people who argue like that just set themselves up. For failure in an argument and it's a shame because it to me at least it seems as if 75 80 85 percent of the population argues like that and somehow they, they think they walk away from an argument victorious simply because they they just repeated a bunch of talking points that, that they enjoy hearing and they'd like to think are true so that's my take on that um so I, I, I did write out an entire like segment for this episode. But like I said, it's it's late and a lot of a lot of these segments are kind of like intertwined with what I was just talking about, so I think I think it'd be redundant. Um oh, let's see. What can we move on to here? Um Alright. Let's talk, let's talk about cancel culture because I've I've been watching a um a few opinion pieces on it not necessarily journalism but more so just people who are qualified as journalists speaking their mind about it. So cancel culture, um, I think this kind of goes hand in hand with what I was talking about. So I guess it's a good segue. Um, when we talk about cancel culture, and it's funny because I, I used to have a friend who we got to talking about cancel culture, and she was like, oh my god, ew, like, how, like you call it cancel culture, that's so gross. And, I was, and, and she was arguably socially liberal, and I, I thought it was very funny 
that she would say that when in reality the the phrase cancel culture is literally the the left's word or it's a it's their phrase i should say because a lot of people on the left um they advocate advocate for cancel culture they think that it's a great thing they think that um one of the uh the people i was watching who was being interviewed who was advocating for it was like oh well like you know it shows that it tells people that oh like your behavior is not acceptable in society and, and you're being made a public spectacle out of to to make an example to show other people what not to do and i think that that is probably one of the most totalitarian viewpoints that someone can have when it comes to social discourse because it's not as if these people are are committing atrocious acts against humanity they're they're literally just stating an opinion or or otherwise they're they're literally just saying something that's not politically correct they're they're stating a controversial so to speak opinion and i think that it's it's disingenuous to say that it's oh well this isn't acceptable in our society therefore i'm going to make a public spectacle out of you to show other people what not to do and i'm going to ruin your life in doing so because from from everything that I've seen, cancel culture is not one of those things where it is arbitrarily applied to people of a more conservative leaning view because I've seen I've seen countless people who, who consider themselves liberals or Democrats fall victim to cancel culture and, and I think that it's it's funny because people don't think that it can happen to them, but when they're quote unquote canceling somebody, I'm sure that it's in the back of their mind like, oh shit, this could happen to me at any point too. And cancel culture ultimately tells people that they can't live their lives without making, or they can't live their lives making mistakes. They can't, they can't. Um, adopt a new belief or they can't change their views on something and anything that they say or do or have said and done in the past can can haunt them no matter how long it's been since they, they've said or done that thing so the fact of the matter is, is that cancer culture can affect anybody and probably will affect everybody at some point um, quite frankly I'll probably get quote unquote canceled even though I'm who the fuck am I, you know, um, for, for saying some, you know, for things I was talking about in the first segment of this episode. But the fact of the matter is, is I, I genuinely don't care. Um, I, I would much rather have open, honest discussion as opposed to just like people arguing using different sets of facts because that's, that's no way to to have have a discussion that's no way to to civilly argue and have a discourse you know um so i i actually wrote a small article not article but a small paper on it for for one of my classes and i entitled it um the firehouse is burning and and the concept behind it was to I guess to put it in a more visual aspect, I, I guess it's good to, to view people who partake in canceling people as, as firefighters, right? 
but these firefighters ultimately start fires just to put them out. They, they try to find stuff that isn't burning anymore. So like, say, imagine if a firefighter found like a small ember burning somewhere where nothing was in danger of being caught fire and then they pour uh, kerosene or something on it and burst into flames. And then that's ultimately what cancer culture is when you dig something up and you're just like, hey, look at this. Look at what this person that everyone idolizes now. Look what they said 20 years ago. And that's that's ultimately what it comes down to because it's happened numerous times. And that's how I visualize these cancel culture individuals. They, they find a small possible item of controversy and, and they'll turn it into something that it's not. They will literally take an ember and turn it into a wildfire, so to speak. And one thing that's been characteristic of cancel culture is the fact that when I say that the firehouse is burning is the sheer fact that at some point you're going to run out of embers to, to put kerosene on and you're going to have to just start your own fires. You're going to start your own fires within the firehouse just so that you can put them out. Just so that you can have that self-righteous moment of, oh, well, I did a good thing. I called someone out on their bullshit or otherwise. So I think that it's important to recognize the fact that people often turn a small incident into a major problem when that major problem didn't necessarily, it's not even a major problem, it's a small incident when that small incident didn't have to become a major problem. And they'll do so just so that they can kind of have the, the self-gratification of, oh, I put out a fire, good for me, you know, without realizing like, oh, well, hey, you know, we're starting our own fires inside the firehouse, you know, like the the firehouse at that point is burning because we, we've lit so many fires now, we, we've created so many problems that we're literally setting each other on fire, we are ruining the lives of people that we once considered allies, I mean, look at J.K. Rowling, you know, feminists, praised her but because of her quote-unquote controversial views on uh transgenderism you know, people have taken it upon themselves to cancel her as if anything that she said was controversial quite frankly i mean in, in the realm of a rational society that they, they were far from controversial so that that's ultimately what i mean when i say that the firehouse is burning is that oftentimes these people will, I mean, like, yes, like, when a fire station is, is is established, there's plenty of fires to put out because there's genuinely an issue with fire safety in whatever municipality that that fire station is, is established in. But once you start teaching fire safety education to people, then... There, there's a minimum amount of fires and therefore there, you're not being recognized for things that used to be recognized for such as calling people out if we're talking about applying it directly to the situations at hand at which point you know if you really want to get that self gratification again you're going to have to start your own fires you have to start your own fires you're going to have to set each other on fire you're going to have to ultimately set your house on fire uh, up until which point you immediately just kind of come to the to the pseudo realization 
that <laughs> everything is a problem. Everything is problematic and everything ought to be stripped down from the top up and rebuilt. So that's one take on cancel culture. Um, so a few, um, a few points to the matter of counterculture or counterculture, cancel culture. Um, was the the tragedy of controlled thought and speech so ultimately this kind of circles back to bill c16 and, and the notion of compelled speech but more generally applied to to american society and and the fact that people are terrified arguably of having open honest discourse um, if we truly think about it, people are scared to think certain thoughts. People will often have a thought come to their head and just be like, oh, no, I can't think that, that, that that's bad. And it's like, well, it could be bad if it's um, arbitrarily applied and arguably bigoted and otherwise uh, insensitive and ignorant. But certain thoughts certain political opinions that that come to mind really shouldn't be censored and they shouldn't be censored at the threat of having your life ruined and your reputation tarnished by these online mobs that will without hesitancy just treat you as if you are uh, a monarchy of france and during the french revolution and guillotine you in front of the public in in the Capitol Square, and that's what that's how a lot of people think. Oftentimes, they think they rather than state how they genuinely feel about something, they'll they'll kind of like masquerade that by saying, "Well, um, I'd rather just not talk about that subject, and I'd rather talk about something else that I'm that I appear to be more agreeable on." So. When it comes to situations like that, I think that that's a dangerous precedent to set because at that point, you, you pretty much leave civil discourse to mob rule. You no longer tolerate the idea of dissent in, um, in public discourse. You don't make room for disagreement. And one thing that's quite characteristic of one thing that's quite characteristic of everything when it comes to um, civil discourse and disagreement is the fact that people who disagree are often labeled as not even labeled they, they are equivocated with the worst of the worst in society people who are conservative have often been labeled as on par with fascists and nazis and racists and, and uh, segregationists and a, a million other things that you can think of you know and Again, that draws back on an ad hominem fallacy because it's a direct attack on character which is meant to to immediately invalidate any and all arguments because 
it's easy to it's easy to disregard someone who is making their opinions known if you can just brush them off as oh you're just a racist or oh, you're just a bigot or something like that because it's easier to paint your opponent as being someone who poses a significant threat to society as opposed to someone who could genuinely have a valid point, valid opinion on something that ought to be heard and ought to be presented to the public in, in the in the um in the the square of public thought, you know? And it's quite common that people equivocate conservative thought and conservative opinion with Nazism. And, and quite frankly, I, th I think that that's not only disingenuous, but it's also it's, it's one of those things where people don't realize the severity of doing such things and what kind of toll that takes on society. Because at that point, if you're going to label one opinion that you disagree with as Nazi-esque and, um, and racist and otherwise, and then you can pretty much disregard any and all dissented opinions as such. And that just kind of shuts the door to it because you can't counteract an allegation of racism. You can, anyone can easily have written down every non-racist and it's again it's, it's trying to, to prove a negative you know like you can you can write down every non-racist thing that you've ever done in your life and it still will not protect you from an allegation of racism or sexism or otherwise and I think that it's dangerous to to the idea of, of open and honest discussion because at that point you, you literally just become I don't want to say sheep because it's not the right word, but you, you become um, programmed in a sense to to just spew certain talking points at any given moment, depending on what discussion is being had, rather than uh, construing and making your own thoughts and pre and um, voicing your own opinions. It, you ultimately just go down to it's like well what do other people say what, what's the what's right for me to say as opposed to what do I honestly think you know and personally I'm not even remotely scared of allegations of racism or sexism or anything like that I'm not because I know that it, such allegations would not be true I know that you know I'm uh, Every single person that I know could try to accuse, like, could try to accuse, like, if they were all, you know, those social justice warriors, they could all attempt to accuse me of being a racist or otherwise simply because I'm a conservative. But they would know in their hearts that I'm not. <laughs> and just because it's politically correct to say, you know, like, oh, you're, you're a Republican, therefore you must be a racist, and therefore you must be a sexist, and this that and the third but it's just if someone I've, I've never been called a racist in my life and I'm waiting for the day that someone tries to call me a racist because I would I would probably chuckle and just say is that the best argument you have against me 
and then I would literally try to debate them on the, on the facts and the points and not only would I prove that I'm not a racist but I would prove that I am just as anti-racist as they are like I don't like racists I don't like people who believe in the supremacy of one race over another I don't I don't like ideologies that that try to separate the races based off of mere arbitrary um, differences such as skin color and religion and national origin and things like that uh, that that's just simply not what I care about but simply I don't place any emphasis on that and quite frankly I think it's disingenuous to say such things because when you try to separate people on the basis of race you ultimately get racism and seemingly that's what all progressive policies not necessarily policies but that's what all progressive talking points seem to get at because they like to to, to make everything about a racial issue and things like that rather than just deconstructing things and just saying like look like you know like what x person is doing fucked up is fucked up or what x group of people is doing is fucked up um i remember when the siege was happening on the capitol and rather than just saying look like these people are psychopaths they're sieging the capital this is the first time that the capital has been in, been uh, overrun by uh threats to society since the war of 1812 and you know something that we should all unanimously condemn as uh, egregious acts that should never be had to be seen again but rather than that rather than having a genuine consensus on on the fact that what was happening in, in D.C. on January 6th was horrible. Uh, people on on the progressive left immediately just began to play the race card. They immediately went to, oh, well, could you imagine how different this would be if these were all black protesters? And, you know, I got into a little discussion with somebody at work about that because he, he ultimately wanted to plead the case. He's like, oh, well, imagine if they were black protesters. I'm like, well, we don't know if they would be or would not be. But the fact of the matter is, is the fact that people, the people who siege the Capitol are de are uh, not worthy of bearing the title of American. The people who waved Confederate flags in the Capitol should not be considered patriots. And then it, it went down to like, oh, well, imagine how many people would have been killed, this, that, whatever. I'm like, well, okay, well, you can argue that case. But again, we don't know because it hasn't happened. But if you want to talk about people getting killed, we can talk about the fact that an unarmed white female protester was literally shot simply by trying to climb through a window. She was shot and killed. But like again, like I don't try to make things a race issue because there's just no point to it. Because, believe it or not, a lot of things are much deeper than skin color. And, you know, in, in not necessarily in opposition, but contrary to what certain people on the left would have you believe... Uh, that's just a simple fact of the matter. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm just, I'm not scared of being canceled because I mean, I rather than folding to a mob of ideologues, I'd much rather debate every single one of them on the facts and on, on the points that I'm trying to make as opposed to what labels they want to attach to me, you know? And like I said, like no one's ever tried to declare me a racist or a sexist because I I would argue that I've done nothing to, to make anyone believe that. I've said nothing to make anyone believe that. But that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, is like it doesn't matter 
it doesn't matter what I do right now. All that matters is like if you have one slip up in any way, shape, or form, all you have to say, really, as a conservative, is like, well, blacks make up 13% of the population, but yet constitute for over half of the crimes in the United States. Why is that? That is literally the only point you have to bring up, and immediately people would just be like, oh, you're a racist piece of shit, fuck you, this, that, whatever. And it's like, well, no, like, it's a genuine question. It's just like, what, like, statistically, like, people want to argue statistics. I'm like, why is that the case? And it, it'll kind of, like, degrade into, like, oh, well, systemic racism and the prison system and the criminal justice system targets blacks. And it's like, well, there's, there's no evidence to prove that. And then they'll immediately say, oh, see, you're, you're just a product of systemic racism. I'm just like, well, like, you can't, you can't argue with somebody who is um, just dead set on declaring you a racist and declaring all your arguments as racist and therefore all your arguments are invalid. You can't argue with them. There's simply no point to even trying to argue with them because all they're going to do is just launch the same accusations of racism or otherwise at you they're going to launch accusations of bigotry and that's how they're going to try to defeat you but the thing is is like you have two options you can either not argue with them and wait till someone who would would like to to make similar accusations but who's actually willing to have an open discussion about things you can wait till someone like that comes around and actually present your argument effectively or you can simply just just approach that issue and pretty much just be talking to a brick wall that's cons that you're literally talking to a line of bricks that's just as like dead set I'm like oh like the person in front of me is a racist that's that's what it comes down to um and that's not that's not a society that I want to live in by any means because imagine like what that will do to free speech in X amount of years that's if, if I could, if I could pre uh, preface all my arguments against somebody on on the premise that they're a racist or a bigot, like, I would win all my arguments, but I'm, I'm okay with losing some arguments. That's fine. It's part of life. Sometimes your opinion isn't right. Not that it's morally wrong, but it's just, it's just misled or it's misinformed. I wouldn't say that any of my opinions are misinformed because most of my opinions just come from common sense and logic and rationality. But, you know, I guess it's an easy outlet if you want to accuse the opposing party of, of bigotry. You know, it's a good way to shut them down or to discredit them, I guess, in a sense. Because at that point, you're really not even talking about the point or the facts. You're you're really just arguing about the person's character and it's just like, oh my god, you know, the ad hominem fallacy is probably the most common fallacy I've I've come across in my life, and it's one of those things where it's just like you can't even defeat it. All you can really do is point it out, and the more you point it out, the more frustrated they get. And I think that that's hysterical. And that's why I want to be a defense attorney because I'm great at picking apart arguments as opposed to. I can make my own case, don't get me wrong, but when the burden of proof is on me, it's, it's much, it's not as fun <laughs> as watching someone's argument start off like inflating as, a, as a, like a balloon on a hydrogen pump, and then you just take one little needle, poke a little hole in it where it doesn't line up, it doesn't make sense, and then you see that balloon just start to deflate, and it deflates rapidly. 
that's, that's there's no greater joy in life for me than that to be honest with you all right so moving on um and, and that that begs the question of is there a right to not be offended and that goes back onto the discussion that i was having with that kid and it really draws on the notion that um like his notion of human rights and a lot of people will have preached this idea to me that like common decency is a human right <laughs> to be treated with respect is a human right and you know what like i just i just think that it's hysterical that people even propose that idea because you can't enforce decency you can't legally sanction disrespect you know like if i if i was able to prosecute people that were disrespectful to me there'd be so many people behind bars especially we're just working as a retail associate right now oh my god the amount of people i could have locked up for treating me like a subhuman oh my god it, it would be st like me like mercer county um the Mercer County um, County Prison or County Jail could easily just be stocked with all the people that, were, that have been rude to me. So the, the notion that certain people are, are entitled to, to a state of not being offended, I think is, is very um, far, not only far-fetched, it's just, it's just absurd. Um, it's logically and practically absurd, absurd I should say. Not practically as in like, oh, like it's practically this, but it's like, no, like in practice, that is absurd. To say that a certain group of people is, is protected from being offended, like, <laughs> you can't, you can't even rationalize that. And especially based off of something that arguably they just made up in their head or that they've, that they've been existing in an echo chamber so long that everything that they've been told is, makes 100% sense to them, even though it makes no sense to the rest of the world. And this isn't even really to go back on transgenderism, but it's just like, you know, there's certain factions of, of the progressive left that will immediately declare that certain people are entitled to not being offended. And these certain types of people are people who have been, quote unquote, like marginalized or, or otherwise throughout society. I'm just like, well, you, you can't just tell me that a gender that was just invented two months ago is protected from from being questioned of its existence simply because it offends you and uh, he he practically proposed this argument to me the kid that i was having this disagreement with and he was saying like oh well like you know it's just um you know it makes people happy you know that that you know canada has like bill c16 it's gonna have a you have the utility of producing the most happiness and i'm just like well does it really though because then what are you going to do when other factions of people declare the right to not be offended you know like and again not not to invoke the slippery slope uh fallacy but you know that's just um it's just the hard truth that people are going to be offended at any point in time and you know, if, if we're going to have a society where people can't be offended, then, you know, you can pretty much throw comedy as, as a genre of uh, entertainment out the window. You can throw probably 90% of music out the window. 
Because at that point, you're just catering to make sure that nobody is offended by anything. And what are you going to have? You're going to have puppet shows for comedy, and you're going to have Beethoven as music. But I'm sure some people will be offended by Beethoven anyway. Um, So one thing I've noticed is that when when people try to declare a right to not be offended, ultimately what they're trying to do is they're they're trying to control speech. They're, They're trying to control the way people talk. And it's not necessarily a matter of, they're not trying to address anyone necessarily that's being like offensive per se. Like if you're straight up just like trying to provoke a black person by calling them the N-word, like I'm not saying that that black person has a right to not be offended by that. But, like, I understand, like, the fact that, like, yeah, like, that's, like, extremely disrespectful and, like, you know, like, that's just not cool. But I'm not going to legally sanction the person trying to provoke him unless he's really trying to, like, have a call to action and trying to start a fight. Because, you know, it's a different topic. But, you know, when we talk about certain things like, oh, well, gender identity, for example, uh, calling someone by their, by their quote-unquote assigned at birth, and I hate that euphemism, assigned at birth um, sex uh, to, to call them by that like I'm sorry but that, that shouldn't be offensive that's simply biology and just medical science like that's that's how doctors fucking that's how they identify you as what gender you are they literally look at your genitalia and they're like boy or girl Sometimes, like, on a very rare medical phenomenon, you get the intersex when they... It's really not even a matter of you have have the sex organs of a male and a female, but usually it comes on later in life where you might have male genitalia, but you produce more um, more prominent breasts or or otherwise, and you display more feminine characteristics. That's that's an animal of a different color. But, no, when people try to assert the idea that you have a right to not be offended i i just like that's really when people can make fun of it all they want to but that's really when ben shapiro's facts don't care about your feelings really comes into play because i'm just like that's really like we need to separate fact from feeling we, we can't treat feeling all people's feelings as equal we can't treat them all as valid and i'm sorry but that's the truth because if i were to to declare um, some type of transgression against me in, in in the in the notion of legality or in the realm of legality then I can press charges against people that offend me and I w- again I would have so many people locked up in prison because people are offensive to me pretty much every single day working at retail people literally treat you like you are subhuman and if we were to press charges against them just because I was offended by the way they addressed me or the way they disregard me, then <laughs> it's like, you know, like, where did, like, at what point does it stop? At what point, I, I guess when you have a completely egalitarian society and no one's offended by anything, you live in, in, in a utopia, I guess that's the only way you can fix that problem, but shoot, good luck with that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I just think that it's, it's, I, I honestly think that People are obsessed with the idea that government and law honestly cares about how you feel. But like the fact of the matter is like it really doesn't and it shouldn't. 
because if we were to base our laws off of how we feel, then um, the the basic principle that we are a nation of laws, not of men, would kind of go out the window. We would literally become a nation of feelings, not of laws. So, um, and I, I just, it's, a, it's an absurdity to even think about stuff like that, you know? It's absurd to, to try to propose that laws be accommodating to people's feelings. Because you know what, if, if laws were accommodating to people's feelings, I guarantee you the, the, the winners of custody battles would not be 80% women. <laughs> It'd probably be, I don't, I don't know who would get more offended, to be honest with you. I think it probably be probably be even, or they they'd find some obscure way to, to split custody time evenly, and therefore you know custody is pretty much hundred percent for each party. You know, they probably invent a new day just to make it eight days that way. The mother could have him have a kid for four days, and the father could have him for four days. It's <laughs> probably how it would go down. But. Yeah, I'm sorry, but there's no right to not be offended, you know. If someone were to come to the place that I work at and call me a chink, like, okay. <laughs> Even if they said it with, like, the most hate in their heart, I, like, it personally wouldn't offend me. But even if it did, I wouldn't be like, I, that person should be in jail. Or that person should be fined for saying that. I'm like, no. Like, you know what? Like, it, if everything that I thought or said was, like, subject to legal sanctions only because it might offend somebody, I I would just prefer to be in a coma absent of thought. Because <laughs> I... I could think of offensive shit all day. I mean, shit, dude, I watch comedy so much, and I watch, like, politically incorrect comedy, and I hate that that's a genre. Politically incorrect comedy is good comedy. <laughs> that's what it should be fucking labeled as. Um, but yeah, no, like, if I... I it, like, if everything that offended somebody, like Family Guy would never be a thing, The Simpsons would never be a thing, like all these great shows would just never exist, all these great comics would never realize stardom, you'd get these like clean cut quote unquote comics like Bill Cosby for fuck's sake, turns out if they fucking rape women in their free time, you know, like oh clean cut on the outside, who would have thought, um, so that's like, that's why you can't have a, a right to not be offended because anybody can be offended by anything and really it's a matter of subjectivity offense is a matter of personal feeling and you can't have rights so arbitrarily distributed based off of personal feeling you know um like certain asian jokes for uh, funny enough actually my sister and i were having this conversation the last time she was over we were talking about um when Former President Trump, it's a weird way to say it. When former President Trump was calling um, COVID-19 the China virus, she was very offended by it, and personally, I didn't take offense to it at all. But if we if we had a right to not be offended, then it really wouldn't be up to, to a collective group of people to say, oh, well, that offends me or that doesn't offend me. It would literally just be upon the person. Like, 
me and my sister share the exact same DNA when it comes to our, our direct split in ethnicity. You know, like her and I are both half Chinese and I didn't take offense to it at all, but she definitely did. And I'm not saying there's any discredit to her, but you know, if we were to make laws based off of that and declare that there's a right to not be offended, then we would get a very arbitrarily applied system of law that would constantly change and would be impossible to enforce, you know? And that's not a good route to take when it comes to legality because laws are meant to be applied generally and equally, not based off of, well, how do you feel about this? You know, I mean, I'm sure that mur- I'm I'm sure that murders happen, where the person, like a, uh, the family of the victim. I'm, I'm not saying this has happened, but I'm sure, I'm sure it has. But I'm, if it hasn't, I'm sure it could. I'm sure there's been a murder that's happened where the the family of the victim just was not affected at, by it at all. They're just like I genuinely don't care, and like as fucked up as that sounds, like. That's just the fact, like, yeah, like, maybe the circumstance in which the person was murdered was fucked up, but, like, I'm sure there's been families where it's like, I don't care that they're gone, but, like, again, that goes down to a matter of offense. <laughs> like, if we were to declare our laws based off of, oh, well, were you offended by this or that? It's like, again, like, we're we're catering to people's feelings as opposed to people, to, to the existence of fact. And one thing that contrasts fact from feeling is that fact, or sorry feelings are subjective and they're relative to each individual each individual has their own feelings we don't we don't generalize feelings based off of group identity and that's the problem with identity politics is that we assume that they do and you know that's that's why that's why there's such a thing as politicians uh trying to get the quote-unquote black vote you know they, they politicians assume that all black people think the same or all gay people think the same and it's like if funny enough too majority of the time democrats are the ones who who have that mentality i'm like well how is that not inherently racist that you immediately stereotype that everyone in a certain of a certain skin complexion or a certain sexual orientation immediately think the same i know plenty of black conservatives i know plenty of gay conservatives and yet the democratic party doesn't give a shit about them all they care about is the fact that well 89% of black people vote democrat and x amount percent of gays vote democrat that's what they care about so you know um they kind of uh, strayed away from my point but they kind of went more on to, into identity politics which is a topic for another day but um yeah no there there's no right to not be offended there's if there was, then people would literally duct tape their mouths shut. Because at what point, like, what can you do? Any, anything that you say could offend somebody. Sometimes you just say something in passing, and people get offended. I remember when some radical feminist was trying to deem the term, the phrase, or the greeting of "Hey guys," or you know, calling a group of people guys, they wanted to deem that as like offensive and sexist and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, that's how I literally address everybody at work. If they walk in a group, I'm just like, hey guys, how you doing? 
And if I were to get legally sanctioned for that, I, I just I would just quit my job. Because I'm just like, I'm sorry, but that's just how I talk. <clears throat> you want to throw me in jail for that? That's or you want to find me for that? Or take some other legal route to to sanction me for that? And that's absurd. But it's a real thing. People try to do it. Because people can get offended by anything. You know, when, when people... When even... You know what? Even if... Even if we lived in some perfect society where we somehow corrected everything that anybody today is offended by, people would still find something to be offended about. And I think that that's a great example as to why... As to why there should never be a declared right to not be offended. Because, again, you're going to have one with a point of view. 98% of the world is not going to agree with you, and you're going to be offended by that. And then imagine, just imagine if that's how we, we drafted our laws and applied them. That'd be, that would just be insanity. There would be no legal system. There would literally just be like... Um, oh. I don't even know what they're called at the moment. Um, there, there would be like those like corporate trials that they have in a sense. Um, if I didn't have alcohol in my system, I'm sure I could figure it out. But whatever it is what it is. Anyway, you know what I'm getting at. Um, arbitration, I think is what it's called. I don't know. Whatever. Um, okay, so, I don't know how long, I, how long I've been going for this, um, so, I'm gonna skip over two of these things, and I'm just gonna go right to, um, the philosophical aspect of the show, because, you know, why not get all philosophical on a lovely Monday night at 11 o'clock, <laughs> so, um, to the extent that this is political, this really isn't political. I would I would argue that it's more humanitarian. Not even humanitarian. That's not the right word for it either. It's more pertaining to social responsibility than an individual responsibility than it is anything else. <laughs> So the question that I, I want to address is the meaning of autonomy and finding equilibrium with autonomy and virtue. So, and this kind of draws back a little bit on my viewpoints um, on Immanuel Kant because he was kind of the, um, the arbiter of autonomy and his his views on individualism were probably the most profound and I'm I'm sure a lot of it was heavily influenced by um yeah I'm sure it was heavily influenced by the revolution in the United States that had a deep emphasis on autonomy because of the fact that Kant was from like the 1800s and the revolution had been fought and won and America's experiment in self-government and popular sovereignty was already like 
knee deep at that point. Um, so the meaning of autonomy, I guess, is what I'm going to address here first. So an autonomous being is, is an agent that thinks and acts freely, not coerced by any outside factors and is not treated as a means to an end, but as a means in and of themselves, as someone who has inherent value as an individual, as someone who, simply because they are capable of rational thought, is awarded the, the status of being an autonomous being. So, when it comes to autonomy, there's a fine line between autonomy and what Robert Bork and myself call radical individualism, which is kind of on par with hedonism and egoism, wherein you cater to your own impulsive desires and um, immediate pleasures as opposed to rational thought and making sense of the actions that you're going to take and, and making your decisions in complete understanding of the fact that there are consequences to every action, that there are repercussions to every action. And regardless of the action, there's always going to be a, a negative and a positive. And that's, you know, if we want to talk about economics, that's opportunity costs right there. Because you're going to have to sacrifice something for, for one thing. You're just going to have to weigh whether or not the sacrifice of one thing is, is worth the benefit of, of the trade-off. You know? and that's ultimately decisions that people have to make every single day when, when, they, um, when they make their decisions. And really, it comes down to all decisions. You know, anything as minuscule as, like, should I... Should I go buy a coffee today? It's like, well, what, what are the trade-offs with that? I have to spend $3 on a coffee, but, you know, it's going to keep me alert, which is going to help me perform good at my job, which is going to, you know, help me keep my job and, you know, get recognition from, from my employer. And that's going to help my opportunity at getting a promotion, and that's going to help me get a raise. So that's really what it comes down to. It's like you're, everything has an opportunity cost. But in the realm of autonomy, I think people tend to confuse they tend to confuse the fact that you are acting as an agent completely capable of making your own decisions, but that's no reason to, to no longer weigh opportunity costs and making your decisions and simply acting on on impulse and what will satisfy your immediate pleasure as opposed to what will be the best decision for you in your life in the long term and that draws back on the phrase um, a narrow view of the present yields disastrous results in the future um, so in talking about that the meaning of autonomy is really to you know I want to say it was Erwin Crystal in, in his book neoconservatism which is actually a compilation of several articles or not several but dozens of articles 
that he's written over time. And I, and I, if I remember correctly, I'm, I'm going to have to look that up actually. Give me a second. But ultimately, what he said, and this line sticks with me now, and I really, really like to use it because I, I like to live by it. Um, I think directly it's, oh God, fuck, if I could remember it directly, I would love to quote it directly. I don't want, I don't want to misquote him. Um, So I don't have the quote in one of my manila folders over there, but I don't feel like digging through it to find it. But essentially, it's along the lines of um, the the challenge of a free society is to is the is finding a balance between liberty and virtue. You need to. You need to promote liberty while nurturing virtue. So, um, by the way, the the publication of his was The National Interest. Great, great publication, by the way. I just couldn't think of it at the time. But, yeah, so the challenge is, is to promote liberty while nurturing virtue. So, this is really where it come like, where this segment kind of comes um, to intertwine because one part is the meaning of autonomy and then the other part is finding equilibrium with virtue. Um, autonomy and liberty ultimately go hand in hand and, and virtue kind of speaks for itself there. So what I mean by finding an equilibrium with virtue is like that's Irving Crystal's notion of promoting liberty while nurturing virtue. It's like, well, we can easily teach people that they can act as freely as they want, but there's a difference between a good life and acting freely, and a, or I should say, a um, um, there's a difference between the liberating life of acting freely and the good life of acting freely and virtuously, because anyone can satisfy their their immediate impulse and pleasure desires as often as they want quite frankly I mean but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna live a good life that means you're going to your, your life is likely going to be disorganized and you're merely just going to be fixated on finding your next dose of happiness it's kind of like a drug at that point and When it comes to opportunity costs, I think we often forget the fact that opportunity cost is not always immediate, that you're not always going to sacrifice one thing and immediately gain the, the greater benefit and vice versa. Um, sometimes things can, can take a lifetime, you know, like the opportunity cost of going to college, for example, it can it can take you 
your entire life, your your entire career and your entire life to achieve the the status of of scholarship that you desired so much in college. Like me for example, like I, I want to I want to write books on legal theory and political philosophy and things of that nature and it I could likely I could easily be still working on my manuscript on my deathbed in however many years but that's the opportunity cost is that like I'm choosing to go to college and studying what I study what I study and pursuing what I'm pursuing not necessarily just so I can do that but I mean it's it's most certainly a, a component because I, I enjoy writing and I enjoy um, spreading ideas if I didn't enjoy spreading my ideas I wouldn't be having this podcast right now you know um, so in that regard that's where that's where living well and living in the moment kind of clash I guess because people can live in the moment all they want they can I mean, hell, if if opportunity cost was, wasn't a thing and I could live as freely as I wanted to, I probably wouldn't even be in college. I'd probably be you know, tra- traveling the country or something like that, doing something stupid, something that, would, that wouldn't do me any good in the future. It would most likely do more harm than good in the future. But because... You know, because we live in the society that we live in, where where we literally promote freedom, like you know, people have have the option to do that, and that's that's a wonderful thing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they should. It's not something that you know. There's a separate hemisphere between an ought and a and an is. You know, like people people act in a certain way. It doesn't necessarily mean they ought to act in that way. You know, like men have a have a naturalistic desire to impregnate dozens if not hundreds of women doesn't mean we ought to do so you know and I think that that's that's a naturalistic fallacy I believe but anyway that's besides the point um so yes the meaning of autonomy is to is to live as freely as possible but in complete under excuse me Incomplete understanding of potential consequences and and um, repercussions that will follow. So that's the meaning of autonomy: is that like you can act as freely as you wish, but that doesn't mean that your freedom of choice comes without consequence. And you know, I guess to 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 take an example would be the discuss a little bit what I talked about last episode with Ryan, the whole controversy with that, that article I wrote, or the opinion piece I wrote about OnlyFans and saying that like, yes, although you are free to to um, to sell images and videos of your, of your most intimate moments and most intimate uh, self moments doesn't necessarily mean that you you're going to be free from the consequences that are going to follow and you should most certainly expect to be judged for those choices and you should most certainly not question 
why you're being judged for those choices. There shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a question as to why there's a stigma around such quote-unquote sex work, which is also a horrible euphemism. Um, there, sh there shouldn't be a notion of like, oh, well, what does it matter? Like, you know, like, it's my body, I can do what I want. Well, it's like, yes, it's your body, you can do what you want. Just as, just as in the same vein that it's my body, I, sh I should be able, it's not even that I should, I am able to cover my body from head to toe in tattoos and piercings. But if I'm gonna do that, I shouldn't expect to, to become an attorney anytime soon. You know, so there's a there's a fine line that you have to walk between personal wants and personal obligations, because again, we can also talk about through like a sort of responsibility. You know, you're not being responsible to yourself by making hedonistic choices or or. Um, momentarily satisfactory choices simply because like the thing like OnlyFans is quick money which I understand and especially in, in these circumstances I understand why quick money seems appealing but you know if you want to become a school teacher but you have an OnlyFans while you're in an undergrad don't expect to to be permitted to teach anytime soon if at all in your life you might want to Pursue a different career, possibly with uh, with an adult film company. <laughs> to be honest with you, because really, most companies are gonna they're gonna view that necessarily in that they're gonna look for it. But like, if they happen to stumble across it, they're gonna they're gonna question whether or not someone who who was very irresponsible with their own body is going to be responsible enough to handle the responsibilities of of a, of a um. Of a business or or a teaching position or otherwise um, so that's really where finding the equilibrium with virtue comes into play because we can we could talk about balancing liberty and virtue in the way that Irving Crystal does you can talk about promoting liberty while nurturing virtue and I guess in his sense like it's a bit of an indoctrination point where we emphasize the fact that people are free to act autonomously, but because of virtue and because of consequence, we ought to act on our liberty with a certain amount of cautiousness and a certain amount of hesitancy as to what limits we're willing to test when it comes to acting on our liberty. And in that vein, I think that applied to modern society, I think virtue is probably one of the most difficult values to come by anymore. You know? I think that people have lost all sense of meaning in the word virtue, let alone in the... Um, and the notion of it or the belief in it. Because if, if people truly had value in virtue, I think that society would be a lot tamer than it is. You know, you wouldn't see 
it wouldn't be common to see people with gigantic holes in their ears or piercings in their eyebrows or shaved heads or you know otherwise and that's not to say that doing so is isn't virtuous although i would argue that it's really not um because if you think about it really that just satisfies your your momentary pleasure even if it may last a few years it's so momentary in the grand scheme of things because you're going to look back on it likely on your deathbed and just think about all the opportunities that 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 those choices cost you you know but that's besides this point um so when when trying to find the equilibrium between autonomy and virtue i think I think the best principle to apply here is the is the three-legged stool of responsibility, um, and that's probably something that I'm going to fall back a lot on throughout the course of of this show, not this episode, but the show as a whole, because I think that it's probably one of the most easily and most applicable um, concepts to apply to most if not all situations or at least um existential questions because you know finding an equilibrium between autonomy and virtue that that could easily that could arguably be an existential question because it's like well i want to act as freely as possible but at the same time like there's a moral code i have to live by i'm like well you need to find a balance you need to find some in between that caters to both you know something where it's like well i can act as freely as i desire to so long as my desire to act freely doesn't overcome and minimize my desire to live well because being autonomous and living well are 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 not equivocal you know, I mean, I'm not saying that anyone should be deprived of liberty in any sense, um, unless, of course, justified. But um, when it comes to morality, I think liberty is extremely important. But I think that, I guess, with Urban Crystal, it's even more important to have the equilibrium between liberty and virtue or autonomy and virtue, whichever, whichever word you want to use for it. Um, so how do you find an equilibrium between the two it's tough it's a tough question quite frankly it's not a question that I've I haven't I've developed an answer to yet um, it's, it's definitely one that I'm pondering and it's not a matter of well what is like what does it look like when you balance liberty and virtue it's like well you know you can easily look at a good amount of the older population and and see what it means to balance liberty and virtue because many of them live very modest lives and even though i'm sure a plethora of them grew up in in the 60s um a good a good portion of them did not partake in the counterculture of the 60s and arguably led very modest lives from that point up until now and I'm sure that I'm sure they, they may regret 
some of that, but they might regret it in the sense that they feel as though they missed out. But once the the whole notion of missing out kind of subsides, I'm sure they're they're grateful that they didn't partake in any reckless behavior. So. Rather than trying to answer the question, which I'll probably try to do on the next episode, if not the episode following that one, um, I'll, I'll stress the importance of it. I think that'd be a better better route to take. So, as I've stated before, autonomy is arguably one of the most important probably one of the most important concepts that Immanuel Kant has ever um, placed an emphasis on in the field of uh, philosophy because oftentimes people would view individuals rather than as individuals they view them as um, a functioning part of a mechanism And that mechanism in society. And I think that if we were to look at society as a machine, um, we can easily look at it as a collection of moving parts of which all must be working efficiently for the machine to be working as efficiently as possible. And that could that case could easily be made for an individual's part in society, but the thing about machines is that parts are unique to themselves, even though they do play an essential role to the functioning of that machine. Um, that part can be used for other things, and that part was was developed for its own purpose, and just so happened to. Find, find usage in the machine and you know I'm sure if if that part of of the mechanism were to, to just run astray and say well I want to go do this other thing I want to work in this other machine or something like that or I want to try to do my own thing the machine would fall apart and I think that that's a good analogy for society um, so that's where really the importance of it comes from um is the fact that yes we can we can place a, a significant emphasis emphasis on on autonomy but at that same time we also need to address the fact that although autonomous every individual belongs to a society and in order for that society to work in order for it to function properly all the parts need to be working in 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 sync in synchrony I'm not sure if that's a word, but they all need to work together in order for the machine to be working properly. So that's um, so it's important to emphasis um, individuality along with the sense that the individual also belongs to a bigger picture than themselves. Now, with the balancing that with virtue. I'm not sure if the the mechanism analogy really works for that, because um, it would kind of be 
obscure to say that inanimate objects such as moving parts in a mechanism is can be virtuous but um, I guess I'll put it into more uh, less analogous terms and just say well you know the individual needs to have virtue in order to actually function as a part of the society because if the individual kind of goes rogue and it's trying to do their own thing in complete contrast Actually, you know what? That, the mechanism still works. Because that would, that would kind of be like if a part in a machine were to start doing its own thing and kind of just doing whatever the hell it wanted to do without purpose and without um, synchronization to the rest of the machine. The synchronization is, is the virtue. Um, and the machine would still fail and if not it would produce more problems than it would solve and you know that it would be one of those things where it would be more detrimental to the machine as a whole than to anything else because that machine as a whole has to operate with or without the part because you know parts are replaceable you know whether you like to think of it or not I mean yes you are an autonomous being but there, there's millions of autonomous beings just like you that I'm sure are more willing than you are to, to function in a, in a society and I'm sure that that society or society society aka the mechanism would be more than willing to, to replace you with a more uh, cooperative part so, in the sense that virtue matters, I guess virtue kind of serves as the um, as the programming, in a sense, of a machine to, to function properly. Um, virtue would serve as, you know, like making sure that the, the parts are installed right, that they line up and, and do their part with the rest of the machine and the rest of the working parts in the machine. Um, Virtue, virtues, is not. Um, it's not something that exists on a singularity. Virtue isn't one thing. It's it's a multitude of things. Because virtuousness comes in, in several forms and and otherwise, but. You know, like the thing is, like there's there's a, usually a general consensus on what constitutes, like, what makes an act constitute as virtuous as opposed to what act constitutes, um, like hedonistic or or, um, or sinful, if you want to take it into biblical terms. So. In trying to find the balance between the two, you know, I think the best thing really to do is to is just to think about that quote from Urban Crystal, like where we need to promote liberty while nurturing virtue. We need to promote the fact that yes, like you are your own working part, but you are also as a, as a your as an individual working part, you are playing a bigger role than just satisfying your own wants and needs. You 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 belong to a society that needs to function 
and will function with or without you. Well, not necessarily will function with or without you, but if you want to have an active role in that society, you need to you need to play your part. So that's ultimately what the equilibrium kind of comes down to. It's like you need to understand that yes, you know, there is a, a very, especially in America, there's a very deep emphasis on, on autonomy and individuality and personal liberty. But that's not to say that people are meant to fulfill their hedonistic and self-fulfilling pleasures that contrast with societal values. But rather they're meant to... They're meant to act upon those autonomous thoughts and desires so long as those autonomous thoughts and desires are in are um are parallel not, no parallel is the wrong word so long as those thoughts and desires are on par with the virtue and on par with helping the society move forward and continue to function properly because i mean what you see a lot in today's society is just a lot of wrenches are being thrown in the gears of society and it's just it's just really clogging it up and it's making it so much harder to function and and a lot of it really stems from the fact that these parts of the machine are trying to do their own thing and trying to rebel against this, the the machine and you know trying to trying to show not trying to show but they're trying to live out their their radical individualism and their hedonism and their egoism and what it's doing to society as a whole is it's it's slowing it down it's making it more complicated you know we're having to try to adjust for it where it's like well if you could have just acknowledged the fact that you are an active individual you're a personal agent of your own liberty but at the same time you also belong and serve a purpose to us to the society in which you live then i think things would be going a lot smoother i think things would be going a lot better because i mean we can all easily cave to to our temptations in life and our um our impulses but if we were all to do that then what's the point in having a society what's the point in having um a collective agreement on what's right and what's wrong and what's the point in even having family at that point because disagreements among families exist and have existed for since the dawn of man and oftentimes family values really come stem from virtuousness and and otherwise so it's I can understand why it's a hard it's a hard contrast to draw but in that same vein it's it's one that ought to be attempted to achieve because again you can commit the naturalistic fallacy by saying well 
the fact of the matter is that everyone does want to do their own thing that's human nature etc etc everyone you know it's human nature to to want to pursue your own temporary pleasures and otherwise but naturalist fallacy says that well that may very well be true that may be how things are but it's not how they ought to be and an ought is greater than it is you know it's um it's greater an ought is greater than it is because of the fact that an ought is arguably the epitome of autonomy because we recognize that rather than rather than feeding into instinct and human or the fallaciousness of human behavior and naturalism that we are ultimately enacting our autonomy to say I can fight my own instincts as men we, you know, we can fight our instincts to, to impregnate a, a hundred women and say like well no because that's not how society is going to function the right way and it's more virtuous to, to settle down with a single life partner than it is to have a multitude of of children born out of wedlock and uh, an equal to if not greater than amount of women that um that ultimately serve no greater purpose than I guess fulfilling a temporary pleasure and that's ultimately like you know that's you know that's contrasting human instinct from virtuousness and I think virtuousness actually is human instinct as odd as that may sound because I think it's in our nature to want to do good and to want to live our best lives but I think that there's a, a very fine line that we're walking right now where we're not where we have all have different intent or uh, interpretations of what constitutes a good life but I think that if we were to to take a step back and interpret things from a more logical point of view on on liberty and individualism I think that we would have a, a less decadent society we would have one that probably would have a much more defined moral code and a much more structured idea of truth and an object objectivity and I think that that's a goal worth striving for I think that that's something that people ought to pursue rather than just falling back and saying well it's too hard to to strive for something like that as good as it sounds it's just not how things are well if that's not how things are then it's at least how things ought to be and an ought is greater than it is and that's where I'll leave you for tonight um, for next episode I'm going to try to see if Ryan is going to be able to come over to episode 3 I'll 
draw up a, a new show. This was pretty much off the cuff in a sense. Sure, yeah, I had things pre-written for myself with talking points, but really it was unprecedented for me to grab the microphone from underneath my desk and start recording at like whatever it was, like 9.40, 9.45, I don't even remember. But, you know, this is the first time I've ever done a solo show. Quite frankly, I enjoyed it. Possibly we'll do more and we'll probably have a similar setup where we're talking about more not even talking about where I'm acting as if I am <laughs> some bona fide lecturer as if you know I have the answers to everything which I don't of course but I like to think that I can answer some questions so until episode three, which will hopefully have Ryan on it. If not, it will just be me again, but I'll have a different setup and hopefully I won't have to talk in such a quiet voice and toned down voice. Um, for those in the tri-state area where we're getting hit by a huge snowstorm, hope everyone stays safe and I hope everyone has a great week and an even greater February and the rest of the year. Obviously, this isn't a farewell, but I'm just hoping that everyone has a good year regardless. Um, so, yeah. Hope everyone has a good week.